Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to get the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try to tell that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? Savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations, that really turned out well. I'm really good job. I'm really, really, I'm really. You know, I wish I'd thought of that. I never thought anyone would. How did you do that? I'm so glad you're here. I wish I had the courage to follow my dreams. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting here on WLCB 101.5 FM, based in the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. If you're an entrepreneur or a small business person, or you're thinking about it, listen up, because this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a crazy entrepreneur. I've counseled lots of entrepreneurs, and I love helping entrepreneurs. The goal of the show is twofold. First, to share helpful information and resources and hopefully maybe help some of you not make some of the many mistakes my clients and I myself have made over the years. And the second goal is to help inspire you to make your journey faster and easier and maybe just a little bit more fun. To help with that, I have guests on the show every week who share their stories and advice And this week's guest is Julie O'Brien. She's the principal and founder of the Julie O'Brien Design Group. And she joins me by phone today from Indiana. The Julie O'Brien Design Group was founded back in 1989. So Julie's been at this quite a long time and has lots of stories and advice to share. The company focuses on interior design and interior architectural services for residential and hospitality spaces. The firm has won so many awards. The list was was staggering, Julie. Frankly, the show would be over before I finished reading the list. But just to give you an idea, International Interior Design Association Best Idea Awards for residential in both 2006 and 2007, and 12 different awards from the American Society of Interior Designers between 1994 and 2017. Her work has also appeared in many magazines, including Interiors, Brides Magazine, Sophisticated Living, lots of other magazines. Some of you probably already seen some of her work and didn't even know it. And I didn't know this until she shared her bio with me, but she's also a television star because her uh, her work has been featured in four different episodes of HGTV's Homes Across America series. So with that introduction, Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on The Savvy Entrepreneur this week. Well, good morning, Doris. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Talk a little bit about your business. I know you do interior design, but what does that actually mean? What are some of the typical kinds of clients you work with? And what are some of the things that you help them with? Well, I think that uh, it is confusing to the public in general uh, exactly what does interior design mean. And I think it's often confused with interior decoration. Um, we do some aspect of what we do is would actually be called decoration, but uh, primarily uh, we have education in 
uh, all the design areas, architectural, uh, we get a bit of landscape, we get a bit of uh, fine art and it's, a, it's quite a mixed profession. We do services such as planning the uh, complete interior of a home from uh, space planning, how the walls might fit, uh, the uh, elements such as fireplaces and columns and ceilings, ceiling designs, uh, tile designs, cabinetry designs, lighting layouts, and uh, that sort of thing. So it's really planning every element of of a home or of a business. Uh, For us, primarily, it's restaurant and retail. So we do uh, restaurant spaces, same thing. We start from scratch with an empty box and we create an, an entire uh, interior space. The kinds of clients we work with vary dramatically from people doing very simple projects to people doing complete projects like I just described. Wow, that's quite a variety. I'm sure that every day brings some new challenge. I guess for you, is it more fun to... Or is it easier or or more fun or more difficult to deal with brand new projects, like sort of a greenfield, you know, brand new construction or trying to recreate a space that is already existing? Well, we we love starting from scratch. (laughs) When uh, when people come to us, we tell them all the time, you know, you can't get here too early. So for us, it's great to be at the very beginning. We can uh, work with an architect if there is an architect. We can uh, start from the beginning and catch things as they're happening. Uh, so it's a, it's a perfect time is to begin at the very beginning as things are being conceptualized. Uh, so for us, that's great. But we're happy to do uh, renovation projects as well. So we, we often uh, have a mixed group of things. Some things are brand new construction, totally new invention, and other things are uh, adding and sprucing up. So you've been doing this a long time, but your background is kind of interesting. Like you, I think you told me you have a... Degree, you started out with a degree in English literature, and so did I, but we both ended up in worlds way different from (laughs) from reading Yeats and Shakespeare. So talk about your journey. How did you get from studying English literature to starting your own business in 1989? I know, it's hard to understand, isn't it? (laughs) When I went to school, it was a long time ago when I started college, and in those days, Uh, women were really just starting to develop a range of careers. It was somewhat narrow in my family's mind. And my family said to me, well, you can be a teacher or a nurse, pick one. (laughs) That's what we're supporting. Wow. So I thought, well, I can't, I don't do blood very well. So I guess I'll be (laughs) a teacher. So, uh, and so I started uh, in school, but I also trained as a dancer. I love dance. Um, but I could see that uh, that was going to be kind of a challenge to, to make a life career out of dance. So while I did uh, train with maybe this half notion that I, I would go to New York once I got done, I didn't do that. I got married instead. So I think I was following the plan for those days. But uh, I did uh, teach high school English and writing classes for 
just about three years and I spent the whole time thinking, I think there's something else. What could it be? And I, I just stumbled upon design. I, I found myself whenever I had study halls going, you know, taking looks at fashion and design magazines. And I thought, you know, somehow I fit into that world. So I, I did, uh, after about three years of teaching, go back to school in design. And it was sort of fast track through because I already had a couple of degrees. So it was just getting through all the design classes. And one of my college professors had a design firm and she hired me as a graduating student to come join her. So uh, that was the start of my career. (laughs) I did work in a range of design companies. I worked for interior design firms, a couple of them. I worked for an architectural firm and ultimately I worked for a very large top 100 design firm that's located in Indianapolis, the Roland Associates. And uh, that was wonderful because I did projects with them that were all over the country. And it introduced me to a world that was much bigger than I had experienced in design before. So from there, I launched my own company. And I followed what I had specialized at um, the Roland Associates, which was the high-end residential and the hospitality end. So that's how I got going. So why did you decide to start your own business? That's a very brave thing to do, especially after you've been working in a big firm where they have all sorts of people specialized to help you do certain things, right? They probably have IT support and they have salespeople and buyers and all kinds of stuff. And now uh, you wanted to go on your own. Talk about that part of the journey. Well, that, that is the, the interesting part. And I guess I think that is what makes an entrepreneur. You don't know what you don't know, and you have a lot of courage. And that's, that's pretty much what I had going on. I think Rollins gave me a lot of confidence. I realized I'd seen how these great projects work up close. I also could see how a company works up close, an effective company. And so somehow in my head, it seemed like an easy step. I did realize fairly quickly (laughs) that that isn't true. (laughs) Well, there's a, there's a few other little bits and pieces. Wow. You are hardly the first. That's probably the most common thing that certainly was, it certainly was a mistake I made early on and the people I've talked to as well, where you're, you are an expert in something. You feel like you really honed your craft. And so then the next step is to start out on your own without realizing all of those things that need to be in place to actually build a business around those skills, right? Right. It's pretty stunning. But uh, I know that uh, (laughs) that's such a diplomatic word. Stunning. It was stunning. And I know that when I got started, my immediate thought, I I started because I always had a a knack somehow. And this does help as an entrepreneur, especially if you're in a service business. Somehow I always had people asking me, would you do this? And they're basically asking me to freelance, which I I didn't do because we were asked not to do that in the firm I was in. So I wasn't going to, you know, take work. I was going to bring it in. But I finally thought, well, if I can do this for this firm, bring in projects that people that just land on me, I can certainly do it for myself. So that part 
wasn't what worried me. It was, as you said, what about all these things that need to be in place? And so I just started about it and I was, uh, I was very uh, stressed over it. In those days around Indianapolis, there were a lot of flotation tanks. Those all disappeared. But at the time they, they were there. And I remember, uh, Maybe they should bring those back now with COVID. Maybe I now. think they really should. They were really good. <laughs> it was like, you know, your sensory deprivation deprivation, and you're floating in a tank that's totally covered and it's black yep. inside. And I kind of loved it because I could like get out of my head for a minute. And uh, so I would go float when I'd get sort of hysterical. And I, <laughs> I would get hysterical wherever some new drama had to happen. I needed to go figure out how am I going to solve needing all these various things that are basically services that are already included in a big company. A little bit I know they built those. They they don't just, you know, happen. But I would go float. And uh, every time I added a new employee, I would go float. Sometimes I have to go float for a night for a couple of weeks. But I managed to do it. And the way I did it was mostly just absolute sheer belief that I could. I mean, I never told myself I could. I just say, you could do it. You know, you're the little engine. Keep going. And uh, I would go figure out some way that I could afford to provide that segment of the service that wasn't in place. I would find some way to get it done. And I just kept cobbling it together. And then when I could afford to actually make it part of my company and bring a staff person on, to handle something and buy the equipment that was required, I would add that as a permanent part. But uh, it was challenging in the beginning because I think a lot of us, you know, if we haven't run a business, we're naive to what that is. And you see it as you greet it, you know what it is and you missed it. And so I, I guess I did what you call bootstrapping as I had a few dollars to do something, I would put it into the next, the next right step. And I just kept taking one foot in front of the other. And eventually it built, I built it to a point where it was solid. It had everything it ever needed. And there were enough staff members to solve any kind of issue, but that, that took a little while. <laughs> I, well, you've been, you've been doing this quite a while. And so you, I'm sure have lots of advice looking back back to way distant history, what were some of the hardest things about just getting started for the first time? I think that that probably one of the hardest things, and I think this is true for most entrepreneurs, is the money element of it, that you really have to have some money that you can draw upon in order to invest in these things that you need. And so I found that worrisome. I was very fortunate. Uh, there was a woman that I, a banker who I had worked with when I first set up my company and she believed in me a lot for some reason. I, I don't know why. <laughs> well, you're still in business and obviously very successful. So it sounds to me like yeah. she was very smart. She was a really big help. And, uh, and again, maybe she didn't know what she didn't know, but <laughs> at any rate, she did in fact say uh, she would give me a line of credit. And so as things kept improving in my business, she wouldn't expand my line of credit. And so I always felt well taken care of. The bank watched me very closely as a result, and I was very cautious. 
So I didn't do wild and crazy things. I never did anything I couldn't really afford to do. So I guess I, I guess I would never end up being Steve Jobs or someone like that because I think you do have to probably extend way beyond your boundaries and and have good fortune and lots of you know good luck and and knowledge. But I I didn't do it quite that extremely. I probably did it more as a a young you know unmarried mother. Uh, I'd been divorced and I had a small child and I was trying to make a business happen. So I did it with more caution probably than one even has to. Yeah. You know, as a single mom, I can relate to that. I, I think it's really about your risk tolerance, you know, Um, you know, if you're, you're just out of college and you're in a garage and you're, used to living in a crummy car and you don't have anybody really depending on you, your risk of loss, your, your perception of risk is probably different than someone that has a small child or small children to raise on their own. And, you know, that's true for all sorts of different people at different phases in their life. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I had been out of school. I'd been a teacher an educator for a few years. I, uh, had gone back to school and worked full time while I was going to school at night and managed to get through that. I worked for a lot of firms and had done well. I mean, I'd gone through a lot, but I was at the top of what, almost at the top of what I could. I could have become a corporate designer for the rest of my life and, you know, moved on up to vice president presidency of, of the companies kind of companies I was working in but I, I could see that to do the kind of design I really wanted to and to be in control of it and to only have to work with and impress the client not a whole committee within my own firm <laughs> that right. I needed to be in charge and I also would benefit from it financially far more. And so having a daughter uh, actually and a divorce actually motivated me. So during that time period, uh, I thought while the risk was great, I, I was in a situation where the, I was in a different company, a smaller company. I'd left Roland's and was helping somebody else kind of get a design firm rolling in a construction firm getting their design in rolling. I, I felt that it was worth the risk because the rewards were gonna you know, exceed that. And that this company, I was kind of at a point where I knew I, I needed to leave. It wasn't really working out for me there. Uh, we were on two different pages of what it was gonna look like. And uh, so if I was gonna leave, you know, it might, might as well be the time. And that's about how right. I, was. I started and Yes, I have. A, I do have a high tolerance to risk, but I I do uh, also um, always consider what I'm risking, and that's how I've always managed to. I'm curious how you positioned your business. How did you find those first clients, and how did you position your firm vis-a-vis the competition to to I, land those clients? You know, at the time, I was actually probably uh, uh, naive enough that I didn't know I should do that, but I did it by accident. (laughs) So (laughs) thank heaven. (laughs) But my husband and he and I were 
seen each other at that time. He is a brilliant brand at branding and graphic design. And so he was an immense help. So he had a few thoughts about it. But in general, I didn't quite notice that I needed to specialize because I'd never noticed that's what was happening in any of the firms I was in. Um, because I wasn't privy to it, probably. I'm sure it was going on. But what happened is that one of the jobs that came to me uh, right at the time that I was leaving the other company I was at, they were a little different from a lot of the kinds of projects I've done. I had done to that point. And it was the kind that I almost prefer to this day. They're large scale, new home construction. They need a lot of help with interior architecture in this area. And it's not true in all areas because in Chicago, there are far more architects that get more involved with the interior of a residence. But in the area that I was working, the architect will do the layouts, the floor plans, he'll do exterior elevations and then exits. And so it's left to the builder. And traditionally at that point, the interior designers that were working on those projects didn't come in until much later. So the builder would struggle wow. with the homeowner, try to get a lot worked out. He would imagine the, the more creative builders did the best. They had the best clientele, the highest and the finest projects because they could do a lot of that themselves. But I could see there was a giant hole and I just started to fill myself into the hole and offer. And I realized everybody wanted the help. The client wanted the help. The builder wanted the help. The architects wanted the help because they felt could see their project starting to falter as soon as they left it. So I got involved with architects that did that kind of work. They would start to make me aware of projects or send people to me. Same with a lot of the really fine builders. So I developed a client base fairly quickly. Within two or three years, I had a really thriving client base because of that. And not only that, but the hospitality, which I tended to pursue more on my own. I wasn't as fortunate. Uh, we did a lot of marketing toward small restaurant owners and boutique hotels and had success in that area as well. So it, it, uh, it's interesting how it, it worked out, but you know, I was in the exact right place at the right time with the right skill set. Phenomenal. Are most of your clients repeat business or referrals or just you from? We do get repeat business, but that's the tough thing about the interior design and architectural firm areas. Some architectural firms do have certain kinds of clients that would have constant repeat work. But for many of us, particularly if you're in residential, you're always looking for the next project. It's like hunting, yeah. hunting, hun hunting the food yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it can't be avoided. And so while you do get some repeat work, it's, it takes a long time before that repeat work comes back. So we do count on our clients and hope that our clients will pass our name all, names along and that we will we'll hear from new people based on our last work. What makes for a great client for you? I mean, obviously one that pays its bills, but beyond that. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of nice. You know, I really, really like people. I enjoy people. I enjoy working with them. And I 
a great client is someone that just wants to do this, that enjoys it and thinks it has value. Uh, it doesn't, it isn't so important how much they're spending or how, you know, fine of a project it is. It can be a really simple redo of a very simple place and I can like it just as much as some fabulous uh, pro, uh, project that's the end all projects you know they're they're all great I, that isn't the the thing the thing is the person and do they think this has value do they value it is it worthwhile to them um, I really appreciate it when a when a client feels that it it, it met something important in their soul and uh, I could see it and pull it out of them and we together create this great space. So I think of, of it as a collaboration for sure with the client. Uh, well, I was going to ask you whether it's more fun. I'm sure you've got clients all over or have had clients that are all over the spectrum. Some who are probably uh, wanting to be involved in every single little decision and want to noodle over things and others who are just like, I don't care. Just, just do that. Just make it look like this concept here and don't, don't bother me. Um, I do, they are all over the place. However, I find that for whatever reason, and I can't explain it, I tend to attract people that really care a lot. So I don't know whether that's what goes through the grapevine, but I tend to get people that really do want, want to talk about it, want to look at. Now, a lot of them, uh, some of them, it's because they don't want it to go wrong. They want to make sure everything's going right. They want to hear everything and understand it. And others, it's because they just love design. They love thinking about it. <laughs> but, well, the creative uh, process is really yeah. fun. I, I have felt, you know, when I've uh, worked it, with architects or engineers or, or uh, even interior decorators, the process, the creative process, I think, can be just so much fun. It is. And, it, and it's really about you. You know, it's about the, the client. It's about them. And it's uh, so if they want to pay attention, it's so great because we can now make this this home reflect exactly what they would love the most. And I um, I know they can't tell me what it is. So it is uh, something where I talk to them enough and I start to feel who and what they're about. And as you show them things, it gets faster and faster because you get so spot on, you know exactly who they are. And, so I, I think it is a process, but it gets faster and faster. And so over time, I find that some people are maybe not as drawn to just sit and be involved with everything. They get freer and freer to let go because they know you got this, you know, and it's going to look like what they would hope it would look like, only better. And that's that's the goal. I have an well, idea. My, my guess is my guess is you probably, if you didn't have it to begin with, and the, my guess is given how quickly you found a stable of clients when you first hung out your shingle, my guess is you've got a pretty, a pretty good, I don't want to call it ESP, but I'll bet your antennas work pretty well in terms oh. of figuring out what people are looking for and matching up the, the services provided to what the client is looking for. I, I think so. You know, I was going to say that I have an identical twin and uh, she's a doctor of psychology. And people always say things like, oh, you're in such different businesses. And I uh, uh -huh. no, 
we're in the same business. She calls it therapy <laughs> design, but it's really the same business. <laughs> That's funny. I try that to- is and funny. Yeah. <laughs> Inside, very insightful. Well, I I think it's the key. I think it's the key, especially to residential and also to the hospitality. Those two fields, believe it or not, have a lot in common. And when I'm in both of them, whether it's a restaurant owner or it's a homeowner, they both care a lot about how this all works out. The similarities between hospitality and residential is they both have a keen concern about it. Whereas a corporate client, a a hospital client, they're not as concerned. They want it all to be fine, but it's very financially driven. They just want it to cost this much and then they want it to end. (laughs) And they don't think they want it to be very unique. I think that's another, the institutional settings are looking for sort of this bland sort of, you know, kind of the, the difference between building a rock garden for somebody and corporate landscaping, right? I mean, right. corporate it's, landscaping has become absolutely vanilla. And yeah. I'm sure it's the same with a lot of institutional buildings and interior design work. Well, it is. It's acceptance by all. Like, what is the most, like, what's the common denominator? And yet, you know, most homeowners and most restaurant owners, that's the last thing they want. They don't want acceptance. Right. They want an identity. They want something unique, something people will come in and go, wow. Absolutely. And remember it. They also want it to reflect them. And and it's critical that that I hear between the lines of the things that they're not saying to understand what is it they really need and want and what will make them feel like, wow, you know, so that's, that's always my goal. That's what I'm working toward. How has your business and the industry changed since you first got started? And talk about, I know you've, you've mentioned a couple of pivots that you either tried or are thinking about trying. So talk about change and how you dealt with it. Well, uh, our business has changed. And one of, one of the biggest changes has been the internet. There are a lot of clients or what, who used to be clients that have left, you know, reaching out to interior design services because they feel that they can get everything on online. Now, of course, we now hear from all of those people all the time. and We have to go in and fix the problems <laughs> that they created for themselves by doing that. But uh, it's, it's because they, they think they're seeing everything. They're not. They're usually seeing the junk. And they don't know it's junk because everything looks good in a picture online. So people get themselves in a lot of trouble. And it would be much nicer if they didn't do that. You know, if they would just come to us, they would find that this is not going to cost them uh, any more than it would if they did it themselves. But we'll, we'll get it where they really want it. And they won't have all these problems and they won't waste money throwing away the mistakes. So I, you know, I kind of I hate that, that that's happened but it just has happened. I mean, and I have to admit, I buy things online too that, and I of course make mistakes. I, I never thought I would buy clothes online and yet sometimes I do, but the only time I'm happy is when I'm buying a line I know extremely well and know what it's going to be when it shows up. So 
you know, it's the same thing with furnishings and with uh, elements that go into a home, even products. We, we were searching ourselves online for somebody uh, for some wood paneling we needed. And it's amazing what you see at, at really cheap prices. Uh, but the fact is when it shows up, you're embarrassed to install it. It's terrible stuff. So we try to stick with the with the lines that we know well, they have reps, that kind of thing. But as far as the business goes, we are we are branching out into other things at times. We're, we've sampled uh, other product lines, product lines that we've carried. And so that's something we've sampled a bit uh, over the last um, 20 years, really. Well, talk, talk a little bit more about some of those ventures and and the path you took? Well, I think I hit a point about 10 years in where I, I, I felt like I had everything down. I knew what I was doing with the company. And I thought I could see that the only way to expand it financially that I could see at that moment was to add other things. So I did add a product line called Julie Julie, and it was uh, fabricated items like pillows and bedding and uh, tabletop things and things made of fabric. And we showed in New York and in Atlanta. And uh, we had a showroom in San Francisco that carried our products at the design center there. Um, and it was really fun. But what I didn't know is really, it was a completely different business. And so while I enjoyed it for a while and we had some pretty good success uh, I had no idea that bootstrap strapping something like that was more like needing millions to keep building it, not thousands like it was in a in a design firm. And so after a while, I decided I'd have to make a decision. Was I going to really go at it full time and put all my resources into it or stick with design and design is my love. So I I just sold it off for parts, sold off my workroom and and let that go and, and thought lesson learned, <laughs> but uh, we've sampled again. Uh, right now we have a product line that we're not actively pursuing because COVID sort of put a, a lid on it for the time being, but it is uh, also a, a, pre, uh, a pre-fixed um, design for very specific kinds of spaces. Therefore, small condo kind of spaces that would occur say in uh, Chicago or New York, but more specifically, probably vacation areas. And so we're working with that, uh, but we have put it on, on hold until we all emerge from this and uh, can get rolling uh, in the way we need to on that one. Well, that that's kind of interesting. You know, it's funny, my, uh, I've waited, I waited forever for my handyman to come and what he and other tradespeople have said is that in this whole COVID era, that um, business has just been insane. That insane. number <laughs> of renovation projects is just off the charts. Uh, have you found that to be true as well? It absolutely is. And, and that's part of the problem for a prefix that it also included the concept of, okay, the workers are going to show up and this is going to move fast and you can count on it. And well, when you can't count on it, you know, it's a, not a good thing to sell when you can't work 
achieve it. <laughs> All so, true. Uh, so we, we stopped. That's why we put a lid on it because we knew we could no longer meet deadlines and the kinds of things that needed to happen, which were the selling point. All of a sudden, it didn't matter yeah. what we had. Those lines. Uh, if, you can't, if you can't line up the tradespeople reliably yeah. to do what you need to do, it's, it's challenging. And, um, uh, you know, those, those people, I think there's quite a few people that wish they had gone into that business because it's been, it's, it, it's been a real supply and demand situation. Right. Right now, if you have some skills, you need to, to hang a shingle out and, and start helping people because, uh, labor shortages, uh, material shortages, uh, it's, it's a very big challenge at the moment. We, we have, uh, we have as many product or projects going as we did in the days uh, when things were extraordinarily booming. That was in like 2006, 2007. Those were years where the world was experiencing a crazy boom. And uh, it's as busy as that. But the difference is there aren't, there aren't laborers to get the project completed. And when we order things for the project, it takes far longer than, yeah. uh, than than what has always been expected, and so I feel like now I I'm just trying to comfort people and get them through this project. But uh, the truth is, it's a really good time to start a project because um, at least the, it's easy to get the design work done and ready to go. And then as things get better, which they will over the next you know six to eight months, things are all going to improve. Then it'll be like just a perfect time to get rolling on your project because everyone will be anxious to do it for you and, and uh, it'll all be fine. Yeah. Well, where do you see your business growing in the next five years? I mean, where, where do you want it to be? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, I really ha was excited about the prefix and I'm still going to go out and you know, get that moving when it seems like the right time. I would love to see that booming. I would love to see um, the design firm continue to grow and continue to reach out to the kinds of projects that we want. We, uh, we thrive in new home construction and the finer, the more we can do. If they're doing a really great home where they appreciate all the extra detail and the extra thought, it's a great project and so we love that and so that's where we hope to grow we hope to get that moving again and it does seem like that is awakened that uh it went to sleep in uh 2008 uh when the when the market crashed and we went into the the great recession that end of it never recovered to the same level and so I can see now that's starting to perk back up and people are ready to, they've, they've been doing it yourself for 10, 11 years. And so now right. I think we to a point where they're ready to get, right. get to some good, good projects and do it right. Yeah. Well, looking back, what advice would you give to other people who are looking to start a business, particularly maybe a service business like yours, or a combination of uh, services packaged with with products. Um, you know what 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 would you have done differently? What advice do you wish somebody had given you? 
Well, I, I don't know that I would have done much of anything that differently, but what I sure would have done is relaxed more and uh, <laughs> believed in myself that much more because I made it painful for myself and that isn't necessary. One thing I would say though to someone is know yourself. If you can't live with uncertainty, this isn't for you. But if you think you can live with it and feel that sort of inner strength, you're not sure how you're going to get there, but you are, if you can believe that, then you've got it. You've got the, the main ingredient and just hang on to that and keep believing and keep moving. It's just one step after the other. But I certainly, you know, I would tell my younger self, it's all going to be okay. Uh, just, just keep your head up. And I did that just by instinct for the most part, but there were moments that I sure would have loved someone to hug me and say, it would, it's going to be okay. <laughs> and uh, it, it always was okay. It always was yeah. okay. And uh, I wouldn't have wasted so much energy uh, worrying about all those systems that weren't in place. Because when I started the other companies that I've started, I realized that they weren't essential. They aren't essential because you don't have any business. So it's not like you need a lot of systems. And as things come in, you develop the system for that thing. It isn't as though uh, millions of dollars of business rushes in at the exact same moment. So <laughs> no, sad okay. sadly, no. It doesn't work that way. And once I know that, I, I would have given myself a break instead of thinking I had to be at the level of the company I worked with that did everything right. And it was a massive company. I thought it had to be at that level of uh, service. Nope, you don't, because all you have is you and this other client and you're just going to plug away and get it all done and start building your services. So well, in, in fact, I would argue you might go broke trying to put in, put all that stuff in place before you have cash flow to even begin to support it, you know? Yeah, I'd be crazy. <laughs> be crazy. But I think you have this sense when you came from it and you didn't see it get built, you have this feeling it just is there. It's just part of it. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, uh, there's other ways to get to it and you, you get the job done until you can, can advance to the next level of, of, uh, of your company and, and it all works out. But it's, it's a step-by-step -step process, not an overnight. And that could be the, one of the hardest things probably about people that rely on internet business and do sometimes have overnight immediate success. I've always loved the designer, the fashion designer, Gary Graham. And I noticed that he was on this year's Making the Cut, the TV show Making the Cut. It was the second season with Heidi Klum. And, yeah. uh, and what was interesting was uh, he did very, very well. So I don't want to spoil it for anyone who's watching the show. <laughs> he did quite well. And I wasn't surprised because I'd always loved him. I always found his work, in, if, if, if there was a, you know, a whole room full of clothes I might have been looking at, I would walk right up to his and say, what is this? This is wonderful. And it was him. And, uh, but what's amazing, he's done so well. And when you go to his website, 
he shows all these beautiful things and every last one of them is sold out. And I thought, well, there you go. That's the overnight, you know, giant exposure. Now all of a sudden everyone knows who he is and he has nothing to tell. Right, right. That's not so that's not so very good. That's a no. That's, that's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. You know? It's a problem because in the meantime, it takes you six months to get an inventory again and buy people forgot. So that's that right. is a big problem. And that's the problem with Internet or uh, that level of publicity style businesses that start from zero, it goes zero to 100 in a minute. But my business isn't that kind of business, so I didn't have that problem. <laughs> well, I think your your business is like a lot of service businesses, though. I mean, his business is more of a product business. I mean, it's a concept, but it's a product. You're really yeah. selling a service. And service yeah. businesses, to me, I think have have a different challenge, which is you to really build that that base, it takes a it takes a while because Right. You, you know, you, you need to just keep delivering and over delivering year after year until you build, you know, you build a, an amazing referral base, right? That's exactly right. It's, it's about building confidence that people believe in you. And when your name comes up that consistently, it's a positive message about how much more you're going to bring to the situation than than anyone planned on and if you can't do that uh you know you don't build and uh i everybody has hiccups along the way where somebody was either unhappy about something it's usually like in our case it's never about the service maybe some product was late or it was broken when it right or something you know you never know Uh, what little thing can go wrong like that so you depend on the quality of your service and the quality of your response to problems to make sure that people feel well taken care of and that they consistently deliver a positive message for you because that's all you have that's all you have is your integrity and what they're going to say about you yeah you know I didn't I didn't ask you about partners because it seems to me your business like again, like a lot of service businesses, depends on key partners to help you do things that are kind of a an important part of the package of what you provide. Talk a little bit about how you you select partners and what you're looking for. Well, we do end up with a variety of suppliers and contractors who do parts of the project and we're always looking for quality we're very concerned about the quality level our entire brand is based on quality and fineness and of perfection in design that's what we're always striving for so we want the people we work with to equally project that and that's what we're looking for It is sometimes, you know, we have a range because who knows, maybe, uh, maybe the client that comes in would say, oh, but, you know, I want to be at a very specific price range. And if so, we might have a supplier or a uh, contractor who fits that and they may not be quite as perfect as 
the one that's at this, you know, another 30% more. But we, we, we still consider that and we still want it to be good work. But we know that, you know, you can, you can buy some nice things at Pottery Barn, but you can buy some really, you know, junky things. So within a range, there's, all, there's always a range within each, each uh, you know, group. So we're trying to provide a quality range no matter what. I'm sure it's challenging. Um, partners can oftentimes make or break a, a small business person who's a, a service provider like yours. Well, Julie, the time has flown by and I figured it would. Uh, you're in such an interesting business and um, <laughs> a part of the world that I think a lot of people don't know much about. Uh, you work oftentimes kind of invisibly and make stuff happen. Cool stuff happen, but... Um, I, I suspect you're you're the kind of person who's comfortable almost working behind the scenes because it's never really about you. It's about your client. So I appreciate you sharing some of the insights about the, your segment of the industry and, and your business and challenges. But uh, a last question for you. How should people reach you if they're interested in maybe talking to you about a project or... Oh, I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they're a budding entrepreneur and want a shoulder to lean on and a, and <laughs> and some insights, or you know, maybe they're interested in interior design and they want to know more. Well, I I talk with people uh, about my services, about helping them get get into the field, uh, people getting into related fields. So you you have, you, you know, whatever it is, I've talked to people that want to talk. And uh, the easiest way to reach me is to simply go to my website and there's a contact page and uh, it goes directly to me. So I, I see that someone's trying to reach me and I there's a, uh, a form to fill out that has your name and your phone number and what, what you might want to know and how to reach you. But you can do it by, if you prefer email, if you prefer me to call you, we can do it whatever way you like. And it, it allows you to do that on this contact form. Well, that's a very generous offer and I hope people will take you up on it. Um, sure. it but uh, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show this weekend, for sharing some of your insights. It was, it was great having you. Well, you're welcome. It was fun. Thank you. It was fun. In the news this week, the trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the former CEO of Theranos, began. Holmes is accused of defrauding investors and shareholders, burning through billions of investors' dollars while falsely making claims about how well the company's product worked. Theranos claimed to have a blood pinprick test that could screen for all sorts of diseases, and people bought into Holmes's charisma, even though many scientists said that a pinprick test couldn't possibly even have enough cells in it to test for everything that the company claimed it could do. Now, Theranos is a poster child of how not to run and promote your startup in many ways. Yes, it's okay to be enthusiastic about your new product, but no, it is not okay to peddle outright lies that a product works when it doesn't. And it's certainly not okay to fudge data submitted to regulatory agencies. But this week, I want to talk about the collateral damage that most people don't see 
the damage to other women entrepreneurs who are honest and working terribly hard to raise money for their startups. Elizabeth Holmes generated enthusiasm with her brash approach. She was even compared to a female Steve Jobs. So she spoke in the language that many venture capitalists, mostly white, mostly male, could relate to. But because they listened and they felt she let them down, it has become that much more difficult for women entrepreneurs to raise money. There are lots of stories out there with women sharing just how difficult it's become. But the numbers don't lie. A mere 2.8% of venture capital money went to women-owned startup businesses in 2019. That number is truly ridiculous. But since Theranos, it has dropped in 2020 down to 2.3%. As if it weren't already more difficult for women to start businesses. It takes startup capital, which women are more less likely to have. They're paid less on average for doing many of the same jobs. They sometimes need to drop out of the workforce far more often for family reasons. They're less likely to be encouraged and less likely to have the kind of network in place to tap into that they need. And again, are more likely to have to spend time and focus and energy away with family issues away from their business. So Elizabeth Holmes, shame on you. Shame on you for defrauding your investors, but at least you could argue that some of them got what they deserve by not asking enough questions and listening to experts. But the women entrepreneurs whose ability to start a business and raise money who are negatively affected by this did nothing to deserve this. I can only hope soon there will be a high-flying newsworthy female CEO who commands the attention of VCs and big-name investors but let's hope that this time it's someone who actually cares about the role of being a role model and blazing a path that others can follow. For me, I hope Elizabeth Holmes ends up in the slammer for a long, long time. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening, folks. And a big thank you again, especially to my guest this week, Julie O'Brien, who's the principal and founder of the Julie O'Brien Design Group who joined us this week to talk from Indiana about her journey as a small businesswoman. You can find more helpful information and resources on my website, which is globalocityservices.com. There's a library there of blogs, tools, podcasts, and other free resources. Because the show is for you, my listeners, the door is always open for comments, questions, suggestions, or just to shoot the breeze. Email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. I promise you'll always get an answer back from me. Now, be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring. Entrepreneuring.